I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of The Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from The Pavan from William Law's Royal Consorts, Set 9, which we used in our audiobook performance of John Milton's Comus, which is available on this podcast feed. That performance and this podcast are supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Killam Trust, York University, the Spamin Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and individual donors. In our radio play style performance of Comus, you can hear the original songs for the mask, set to music by Henry Laws, and dance music by his brother William at points prescribed in the text. I spoke to our dramatic director, Heather Davies, via Zoom about the music, and here's the first part of our conversation, where we discuss the songs. So, John, uh, just in terms of thinking about masks in general, what is it for you, or what is it in general, um, about the music and dance, and what is the importance of it in the mask genre? Well, it's a, a very big part of the of the mask genre. I mean, the music would take up a, a large proportion of the evening's entertainment. I think with us, it's about 25 minutes of music and the running time is an hour of 10 minutes. We could have probably had more dances for the um, anti-mask dances, could even have been more. So it's a very big part of the evening. So it's it, when you study a mask from a literary point of view, you're really missing a big chunk of the entertainment value. So if I think of it in contemporary terms, what would the relationship be between the music and then the scenes of the mask, if I was thinking of it from a modern day perspective? Well, I think there's probably more music in it, more dancing in it than you'd see in, you know, uh, Phantom of the Opera or something like this. There's a, there's a great deal gives everybody a chance to stretch their legs or would we be listening to it you would be listening to it everybody uh, because the dances are the most important part of the things there's a story of uh, james the first there's a dance and everybody stops to catch their breath and he calls out from the audience is it dance damn you i think it's something fairly colorful and then uh, james's soon-to-be boyfriend just jumps up in the air and does a series of um those flip things where you flip your feet. But anyway, uh, James was much taken with him because of his great virtuoso dance display. So then thinking about the songs and Henry Laws, I'd love you to dive into that for us a little bit today. Well, uh, Henry, Henry Laws is sort of the most important song composer between the Elizabethan Jacobean composers like John Dowland and Henry Purcell. And we're lucky to have these songs. So Henry Laws has a, an autograph songbook that he wrote out all of his songs, and they appear to be in chronological order. So it's that manuscript in his own hand is in the British Library. Uh, it, it's a great thing to have survived. So we can also date his other songs. We know the ones that come before Comus or before 1634 and those after sort of roughly date uh, what order he wrote them in. He was, uh, he's born in the end of the 16th century, uh, 1596 in Salisbury. And he was employed, his first job that we know about in London, he was working for John Edgerton, the Earl of Bridgewater. He's the, sort of the household musician. He's teaching the kids music and I guess entertaining as well. 
And so uh, he, later he became uh, one of the uh, musicians in ordinary for the lutes and voices at court. So he got court employment in this, uh, 1631. And he had already written the music for uh, Milton's Arcades when uh, John Edgerton, the Earl of Bridgewater, was made Lord President of Wales. And so when when his boss said, uh, who can I get to write some kind of entertainment for the celebrations for my appointment? Laws said, oh, I know this young guy, Milton. You've got to check him out. And so Milton was very grateful for, for this. And uh, as we'll hear later, wrote a sonnet to commend Laws. But it's really Milton's first big gig that he got for uh, because of Henry Laws. Right. Uh, during the uh, during the interregnum, as a lot of people will know, there was a civil war in England. Uh, King Charles I got his head chopped off. So he obviously Laws and everybody else who worked in court music lost their job. And um, uh, Henry Laws uh, moved to Oxford, where he started putting on subscription concerts, where people would buy a ticket and go and see a concert which sounds like that's the normal way we consume music today but this was sort of a big deal right uh, it's, that is just starting there and in fact he lived long enough he lived till 1662 so he lived long enough so at the restoration of king charles the second he's got his old court job back and was a musician in ordinary again so then turning our gaze to songs in masks and what we would call the new music could i ask you to uh, unpack mm-hmm. that a bit well, John Dowland, in his last songbook, complains about the new men and their new music and their new lutes, indeed. So uh, Henry Laws is one of these guys he must be complaining about. Uh, John Dowland actually does make use of this new, new style that's coming in, which we call Baroque music. But he likes, again, he's a crabby old man, so he likes uh, complaining about these new guys who are, in fact, getting paid more than him in some cases. Uh, The new music is, as I say, Baroque music, where in a certain part of their output, composers, they're trying to show you how to declaim the music. So they have these big lutes that just sort of play a chord that sustains, and then the singer sings these uh, poems in the rhythm of speech and in the way that an agitated man would sing it, or a sad woman would sing it, or in the case of uh, Ariana, a famous woman who uh, Laws set her hysterical rant on the beach. She's got shifting all the time, shifting her uh, emotions. She's angry at her lover. She, she's depressed about being dumped on the beach. So they love to do those sudden shifts in light and color in the same way as a Caravaggio painting, early Baroque painting, has these shifts in light and color as well. So Henry's Laws is sort of the first great uh, proponent of this style in English. It's sort of happening a little at it's coming in slowly with Ferrabosco, who wrote for the court masks. And then Henry Laws is really the first great composer of that new music. So this greater alignment between the emotional life of the character and the music, kind of a greater synthesis in terms of representation of the emotional life of a character. It's almost as if the compose, composer is no longer a composer, or at least a big part of his job is showing you with the pitches and rhythms, you know, does he does he sing or speech sing this quickly? 
or does he speak it up high? It's almost become almost like a, a stage director himself telling you how to declaim the text in addition to being a composer of setting these things to pitches. In fact, Milton's sonnet, as I said, Milton was very grateful. Milton's sonnet that he writes as a commendatory poem at the beginning of many of Henry Laws's songbooks. He, let me read a bit of it to you. He goes, to my friend Henry Laws, Harry, whose tuneful and well-measured song first taught our English music how to span words with just note and accent, not to scan with Midas ears, committing short and long. So Milton's uh, saying he's the first good composer, really, because Milton's all about his own text, you can imagine. He wants it to be sort of well-measured, so the, the measured declamation of Milton's poem he, he wants that close attention paid to it. He wants laws to set it with just note and accent. So where there's a strong syllable comes on a strong beat, committing short and long. So the short and long syllables are to the right declamation for what laws and Milton thinks this character should be demonstrating in whichever poem's going on. Right, in terms of experience being expressed through pitch, mm -hmm. pitch tempo variation. That's incredibly helpful and such a, a big moment historically in terms of the way that story is told through song as well, I think. Is it? Mm -hmm. And this becomes this becomes opera. Uh, so Monteverdi's operas, are there are what we could call arias, in there, but a lot of it is this declamatory style, and Henry Laws is taking that on. Henry Laws is imitating Monteverdi in um, his setting of Ariadne's Lament that I just was talking about. Yeah. So, th thinking then specifically about Comas and the project that we worked on, I wonder if I could ask you to share a few words about each of the songs. The uh, demon or attendant spirit uh, comes down and much of his job, right? His first long speech is all um, expository, setting the scene. Like Gower in uh, Shakespeare's Pericles, he has a long speech at the beginning. It's not as long as the attendant spirits. But the first thing that happens is he comes down and sings his uh, uh, little song uh, from the heavens. In the Bridgewater manuscript of Comus, which is the one we're doing a version based on that rather than the later printed versions, this song comes right at the beginning, whereas Milton's found a way to put it at the end in uh, the printed versions. But a great, a very dramatic thing, right? Descends perhaps from the heavens and sings his song from the heavens. It's, but again, it's a kind of expository, so it's not extremely expressive in that way that I was just talking about in Laws's style. Um, Sweet Echo, though, is uh, sung by the lady, Henry Laws's student and uh, the daughter of the Bridgewater family. Sweet Echo is, that's, I think, the most expressive one. It's got these angular melodic leaps and snappy rhythms where she's going, oh, goodness, what's happening to me now? It's probably the most famous song. It's certainly the one that's reprinted sort of as an example of Laws's style. And I think with those angular melodic leaps and things, it would have been quite difficult for a teenage girl to have to learn. There's an 18th century music critic, late 18th century, uh, Charles Burney, who prints a transcription of Sweet Echo, and he hates it. He says, I'd like to know what the good thing about this song is, except for insipid simplicity. 
because his criteria for what's a good song in the late 18th century, sort of, you know, time of Mozart and Haydn and everything, his criteria is not the same yeah, as the early Baroque. Uh, and in the same way that our criteria is not the same. We want a tune to sing. So the one that always sticks out to me is shares. Do you believe in love after love? I can see something inside me. Well, the, the rhythm of that, you wouldn't say, I can see something inside me. You could see, I say something, right? So in the early 17th century, that uh, mixing up of uh, committing short and long syllables to the wrong kind of notes and not having the just note and accent, that would be just like, oh man, that's terrible. But we, you know, that was a massive hit for Cher because our criteria is not their criteria. Sabrina, again, was sung by the attendant spirit or demon. Laws has sort of carefully considered how this character would declaim Sabrina and sort of cries out to her with the introductory Sabrina and uh, sort of says, hurry quickly. So we can see his um, emotional state when he's evoking her. Now, the next song by the Rushy Fringed Bank, it says in the manuscript, uh, it, after it's done, it says song ends. And it's the only song that's not in Laws's manuscript. So we don't have the music for that. Presumably it was set because it says song ends. So what we did is Hallie Fischel and I, when we were doing this in classrooms and at uh, seminars and things, we took uh, several of Henry Laws's other songs. I think we used, uh, uh, there's a phrase from Go Lovely Rose. I think there's one song by uh, John Wilson that we stole from. And we sort of took a, and made this song up as a pasticcio from different Laws songs mostly and where the rhythm of this of the speech fit phrases and fit the emotional state of a river goddess. It's hard to say what the, do river goddesses have emotional states? I'm not sure. Uh, so that was the only song that we sort of put together. And there's precedent for this. Uh, um, Nicholas Lanier in an earlier Stuart mask takes a song that he's already got on hand and sticks the words from the mask into that song. And then, of course, there's Back Shepherd's Back. Again, it's a very expository song, pair of songs, sort of two, two in one. It's, and it explains, here we are, There's the, we've seen the shepherd's dance, now, Madame and Monsieur, we're going to see your kids dance. Enjoy this. And then, of course, at the end, there's a short little um, sprightly song saying so long. Thanks. Thanks for coming. And that's the end of the party that night. Well, it, maybe it was. We'll come to that when we're talking about the dances. You talked about the uh, accompanying instrument. Could I ask you, for our listeners today, just to clarify again, what is a theorbo? Now, yes, I'm accompanying these songs on an instrument called theorbo, which is a very large lute. First of all, the lute part of it is very large, the, the fingered string length where you put your fingers is on mine it's about 25 centimeters longer than a modern guitar so it's nearly a foot longer just where you put your fingers and then the, the body's commensurately bigger and the, it has a long neck extension 
that's used for the very bass, low bass strings. Uh, goes down nearly as low as a double bass. So those are nearly six, nearly six feet long. And this instrument was invented for the new music in um, Florence in the 1590s. And Inigo Jones, the in fact, the um, stage designer for all the um, uh, Stuart court masks, he's said to have brought the first Theorbo to England in the first years of the 1600s. There's a, somebody writes in their diary at the time, he was sent to see the constable because they thought it a machine brought from popish countries to destroy the king. Ooh. Yeah, I don't know if you could destroy the king with a Theorbo, but... So the Theorbo is a, a, a very big bass lute, and the tuning, sort of in the same way that a ukulele goes down and back up, uh, the, it has what we call a re-entrant tuning. So the top one or two strings are down the octave from where you'd expect them to be. And consequently, you're out of the way of the singer. Your, your top note is not in the same part as the singer's. So it gives the singer the freedom to declaim, as I say. You don't get in their way and you can't play all this complicated polyphony that you can play on a little lute. So it's ideal for accompanying uh, song. And in fact, it was used in orchestras right up till Handel's time. The, I think the last year that Handel specifies the Orbo in a score is the same year that he writes The Messiah. And he it's used as a continuo instrument in orchestras. I just get the bass line and I make up chords in the same way that a jazz guitarist would. I make up chords to accompany the singer and their declamation. Right. And you, you mentioned to me in the past uh, a picture, is it? Uh... Oh, Lady, yes. There's a very famous picture by uh, of Lady Mary Roth, who's a, a, a niece of Philip Sidney and Lady Mary Sidney. She's, uh, there's, if you go online and Google Lady Mary Roth Theorbo, there's a picture of her. She's very proud of her. She's standing there in a lovely dress, of course. Uh, full-length picture. And she's cradling a Theorbo beside her in her arms. So I'll put that on Twitter uh, and people can look at it there if you follow us on Twitter. I, one of the things I love about the Theorbo is exactly as you talked about, that space between the notes mm-hmm. that where the Theorbo is living and the, the, the space and yet support that it provides for singers, I just think is quite magic. And that's, yeah, that's all it's for. I mean, it's hard to play solo in, solo music on it because it's so big. It's like playing solo music on a double bass. And because of this funny tuning, you can't play all that complicated uh, polyphony is very difficult to put together on it. That was director Heather Davies in conversation with me, John Edwards. Scroll back in the podcast feed to listen to the whole of Comus, if you haven't already, and you'll also find the dance music we recorded for it. Check musiciansinordinary.ca for Heather's bio and for those of our other performers. Subscribe to our podcast for part two of our chat about the music of Comus, and more music and poetry of the 16th and 17th century, and more chat about it. And if you would like to help support these podcasts, please go to musiciansinordinary.ca and click through to canadahelps.org.